Well, as Pastor Vernon has said, this is the first weekend in Lent. And Lent is traditionally in church history a time of refocus and repentance, recalibration of our relationship with God. We will be having special ways to do that. Some of the ways are the classes that you have um, in your bulletin uh, that are offered during this time of year. Uh, that helps you along. Some of these are very difficult. Uh, I want to point out one, uh, Marriage 911. Uh, for those of you who are going through a marriage um, catastrophe, um, let's not beat around the bush. Uh, your marriage is on the rocks. and. You're not even sure you want to fix it, but you're pretty sure you need to try um, because that's what God would want. I want to say two things to you. First of all, this is a safe place. We love you just like you are because God loves you just like you are. And so it's okay whether you're struggling with addictions, whether you're struggling with relational crises, no matter what you walk in here with, know that all of us share that burden and all of us, there's no temptation, but such as is common to man. And so all of us have been there and we know, and this is where you belong, but we will help you address it because unless you name it, it can't be fixed and it won't be fixed. And so I think the first class is this uh, Wednesday night, but uh, we would invite you to that class. Um, and all of the others that are taking place, uh, whether they be for edification or for um, healing and, um, and redemption, we'd, we'd love to have you there. Let me talk about how important it is during this time to remember who God really is. C.S. Lewis said this, there are three images in our minds that we constantly have to discard and replace with better ones. One is our image of God. One is our image of each other. And one is our image of ourselves. Now let me tell you why that is necessary. If you're going to truly love, you've got to love somebody for who they truly are. And, and, and to, to, to do that with increasing accuracy, which is to do it with increasing intimacy, you have to update your knowledge of them. Many of us think we know who God is, but we don't know enough of who he is. And the devil is just subtle enough to quietly and slowly replace the real God with our image of God, who we hope God is. And so therefore we have a problem. It's called worshiping other gods. It's called, in a sense, idolatry. Now I heard Charles Stanley say one time, if there was any of the Ten Commandments, which you could survey people and, and they would say, I'm least worried about violating this one, it would probably be that you shall have no other gods before me, uh, you shall not make for yourself any graven image. Because in this culture, you know, making an idol is just, you know, unheard of. But could I just say, you don't have to have a physical graven image before you've got an idol. And that's what I want to teach us this morning. And by the way, as usual, I'm going to say something to offend you. 
And as usual, I want you to remember, I'm talking to myself, if you get anything out of it, that's great. Because I'm offended. All right. Let me tell you about Paul walking through Athens. There comes a place <clears throat> um, in his ministry where he's waiting on some other Christians to catch up. And he walks into this city. Some of you have been there. And you've been to the spot he's talking about. Um, and, and it was a city full of idols. Now, this wasn't just a spiritual challenge. This was an economic challenge. Because idolatry was their main industry. And so when he confronted idolatry, he wasn't just confronting what they had inside. He was confronting their financial security. All right. So this is what it says. Acts 17, 16 says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. By the way, no matter where you are, you live in a city full of idols. I'm going to teach that in just a minute. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews. Just switch to Acts, 2, uh, uh, Acts 17, 22. So Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus. This, I've been here. I've been on this rock. Some of you have tried to climb this rock. There have been so many people who have climbed this rock where Paul addressed the council of the city. These great philosophers who wanted to know every new idea. Just, just as we are a part of a culture that wants to know what every new fad is. They, they had fads of, of philosophy. And so they wanted to hear about this new philosophy or theology that Paul was propagating. And so they called him up. So anyhow, he stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Now, was he paying them a compliment? Well, kind of. Maybe a half of one. Have you ever heard somebody say to you, I'm a very religious person? Let me translate that for you. By saying I'm a very religious person, what they're literally saying is, I have not exclusively given myself to one God. Watch this. And I don't know God personally. What they've said is, I have general inclinations toward being religious. That's a good thing, but it's not a saving thing. This is Valentine's Day. I see all of you got red on. I wore a red tie. Got to, got to do the deal. All right. We, some of you say, I believe in love. Isn't that wonderful? But it's so easy to say. How about this? I commit myself exclusively to one person to lay my life down for that person for the rest of my life. That's a different matter, isn't it? That's a whole different matter. Men of Athens, I observe that you're a very religious people in all respects. You see, he had an open. He sensed an opening. Watch this. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, they were literal objects. These, these little idols all had a God attached to them. He said, I also found an altar with this inscription. 
to an unknown God. Now, why did Paul pick out that one as a portal to show them who God really was? Very simple. If you talk to somebody who is convinced their God is the real God, it's a much more difficult conversation to unhinge them from that God than talking to somebody who's saying, you know, I don't know that I know God. At least I don't know him as much as I want to know him. That's your working portal right there. Whether you're talking with non-Christians or you're talking with Christians. I hope all of us would have that opening. I don't know God as much as I want to know him. I'm not as close to him as, I, as, as much as I want to be close to him. That's a wonderful opening. He said, therefore, what you worship in ignorance. I, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. I want us all to understand something very, very important. God made this world and it's good. All right? We know that from Genesis chapter 1. This, this, the world itself, creation is not evil. If creation was evil, God would not have become incarnate. It is good. God kept saying that himself. On, on, on uh, Ash Wednesday, uh, Pastor Vernon was preaching, and he reminded us of that great Hebrew word, tov. That's the word that the Bible uses when God stepped back and said, at, at every stage of creation, oh, that's good. And he saw that it was good. And he saw that it was very good, tov. Tov is Hebrew for good, but it doesn't, it's not just a moral good. It is a, this is, this is just like it's supposed to be. This is just like I pictured it when I made it, only it's even better because it's a reality instead of just in my mind. Tov, this is good. Now, there is a way the world is supposed to function. And the way is a whole lot like heaven. That's why we pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every once in a while, we'll stop and we'll say of our own lives, and probably every day we stop and say of the world, something's wrong here. This isn't operating like it's supposed to operate. That's because God has implanted in us tov. There's a way things that are supposed to happen. And the way we sabotage the right way is to veer toward the wrong way. Oh, my heart prone to wonder. <laughs> Lord, I feel it. There goes the old hymn. God made the world good so that we could see him in all the world. It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The better you know God, the more you'll see him everywhere. 
in every situation, in every created fact, in every created being. But we have an enemy, and he's subtle. And the enemy is not always trying to get us to do the wrong thing. Sometimes he's just trying not to get us to do the right thing. The enemy is not always trying to get us to pay attention to sin. He's just trying to get us to pay attention to normal stuff and to be so preoccupied with us, we won't, with it, we won't pay any attention to God. As a matter of fact, that's when the normal stuff begins to become our God because we promote it to a level of attention it never should have had. Let me show you something in Scripture. This, there's this passage in, in Isaiah. Isaiah 44 is all about the folly of idolatry. And this is, this is what it says. In Isaiah verse 9, it talks about those who fashion a graven image are, to them of, of them are futile and their precious things are of no profit. They, they even own uh, um, witnesses to uh, fail to see or to know so that they will be put to shame. Now watch the next verse. Talks about a guy who goes out in the woods and cuts himself down a cedar. Surely he cuts cedars for himself. This is a block of wood. Now watch. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and he's satisfied. And he also warms his hands and warms himself. And he says, ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. Now stop right there. So with this wood, he's got something good. It's practical. It's being used as it should be used. It's, it's being a blessing to him. Watch this. The very next part says, but the rest of it he makes into a god. His graven image. He falls down before it and worships it and also prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. You say, what? I would never do that. Seriously? There are not things in your life that you turn to instead of God that give you either um, um, relaxation or, or pleasure or um, comfort or... Hang with me a minute. We don't realize we're doing it. The Bible says this. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I've burned, no, wait a minute, I've burned half of it in the fire, also baked bread over its coals, I roast meat and I eat of it, and then I make the rest of it into an abomination? I fall down before a block of wood? Have you ever come to some place in your life and all of a sudden you say, what am I doing? How did I get here? What, I'm, I'm trying to make something that doesn't matter, matter way too much. Oh my goodness. There is a sense in which we've had this problem for a very long time. Let me take you back to the most subtle creature God has made because he is still with us. Let me take you back to K2. 
categories of drawing our, tem- our, our attention away from God to things that are good, but things that are never going to be God. And we can't make them that because these things may have become idols in our lives. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. The woman standing in front of the tree. I told you this last time I talked with you. After God says, don't go near that, don't, you just, there's only one tree that I forbid. Where she find herself? Right in front of the tree. You know, we're drawn to that which is forbidden. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Appetite. Remember that one. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Attraction. Remember that one. And that it was desirable to make one wise. Knowledge. Remember that one. And she took from its fruit and ate. We have this continual drawing toward these same kinds of temptation. What's she paying attention to? She's paying attention to a tree. She's not paying attention to God. What are we paying attention to in our lives? Well, let me take this through. Let me take this idea through with you. Our appetites. You know what it says in Philippians? It says this. It talks about those whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Let me just, let me go here for a minute. Let me talk about food. How many of you eat because it comforts you instead of because you're hungry? How many of you eat because you're celebrating? How many of you eat because it's the way to spend time together and it's a social thing? How many of you eat because you're bored? How many of you eat for a number of different reasons rather than to put good fuel in your body so you can live a life that's useful? Most of us, even when you're on a diet, you're thinking, wonder what I can eat next. It preoccupies, it draws your attention. Oh, you know my favorite thing. You know what I'm hungry for. Do you know the commercials on TV? If you all are on a diet, you know the commercials on TV. It's all about food. When you are thinking about food, are you thinking about God? See, the devil doesn't need to make you sin as long as he can make you not pay attention to God. You understand? What about the second one of these categories? Attraction. We love to be attracted, don't we? We love to be attracted. I saw a bumper sticker once. A woman was driving a car. She said, once I set out to change the world, and then I saw something sparkly. But you know what we like more than to be attracted? To be attractive. We want people to think we're attractive. And down deep inside, we want people to approve of us. We yearn for people's approval. 
And so we live the life that will attract people. And it literally becomes an idol. This isn't new. Do you remember when Moses was up on the mountain? He was getting the commandments. Remember the first two commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I'm the, I'm the Lord. I, I love this. Watch this. I'm the Lord who brought you up out of the land of slavery. What we're talking about here isn't bad. It's bondage. God doesn't want you in slavery. That's his main deal. He wants you free to love. Really love. I'm the one who brought you up out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make of yourself any graven image. Do you know what's happening precisely at that time? Down at the bottom of the mountain. Exodus 32, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a god who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Do you know what the first idol was made out of? That which makes us attractive. Our decorations. Why? Because people want to feel attractive. And ultimate people want to be approved of. Now let me get something straight. Do the best with what you got. There's no virtue in being intentionally ugly. <laughs> Seriously. You know, being your homeless self just doesn't make you any holier. Seriously. Do the best with what you got. But that is way different than thinking constantly, how can I be better looking? How can I be more attractive? How can I have people's approval? You understand, don't you? You've already got the approval of the only one who counts. God loves you just like you are. That's the gospel. You don't have to do anything to gain his approval. This isn't about God's approval. He, you had his approval in that what you were yet sinners. Christ died for us. His approval is on that cross. He already, you already have the only kind of approval that counts. And anything else that shames you, literally shames you into seeking people's approval above God's, is not the work of God. It's the work of the devil. There's a third category. And the third category is this knowledge, this, you know, you can be self-sufficient. You have to depend on God. God knows that you eat it. You, you will be wise. You'll have the knowledge. You'll have control. Won't that be great? If I know enough, I don't have to depend on anybody. I can tell other people what to do. That 
helps us get God out of the control in our lives. But it doesn't work. You know it doesn't work. I realize that, again, you do want to have a modicum of discipline in your life. You know, because when, when we don't have any control, when we don't have any discipline, it all just kind of goes everywhere. Nothing really accumulates. You don't really accomplish much at all. And most of us, in order to improve our lives, can't just get up and say, you know what, I'm going to live a better life. Most of us need a program. That's why I like Lenten studies. You know, they go, oh, okay, get, I, I got something to do every week. All right, I, I know what, I, it's laid out for me, good. I can't get up, I can't go on a diet by saying, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just, after I get up, I'm gonna eat less today. That doesn't work for me. I, it may work for you, it doesn't work for me. I gotta have a program. But I gotta watch that the program doesn't become the preoccupation. My sister sent me for Christmas. My sister's just a little bit older than I am, and she's just in phenomenal shape. And, and we've always been kind of disciplined just as a, as a family and, and, and uh, coming out of an undisciplined background. And so she sent me a Fitbit. You know what Fitbit is? Yeah, Fitbit is, is like this thing that I wear on my wrist. Some people wear it on, on their back, but it tells you how many steps you've taken, how many calories you've burned. You can insert what you've eaten so you know the proportion, how, how fast your heart's beating and so on and so forth, you know? So it's kind of a program. You can kind of check yourself as you go along. It's kind of a program in itself. Well, I thought that's pretty cool because, you know, it's after the holidays. I need to get back in shape. And, you know, I've always wanted to, I've always wanted to stay in good shape. When you get my age, it's not a matter of vanity. It's a matter of survival. And so you, you just got to stay in good shape, you know? So I'm wearing this thing now, and I'm checking it every once in a while, and then I start checking it, like every, and I'm thinking not, I want to go talk to so-and-so, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I wonder how many steps to so-and-so, how many calories am I going to burn up going to so-and-so, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm going to my Fitbit, I mean, I don't know, dozens of times every day, and then it hit me. How many times am I going to God every day? Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Now, I'm not going to get rid of my Fitbit, but now I've decided something. Every time I look at my Fitbit, I'm going to pray. I'm going to say, God, thank you for my healthy body. I can't believe what a blessing that we can be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That I can discipline myself to lend the members of my body to righteousness and not unrighteousness. You see, everything you do, you can take everything and you can use it to lead you back to God. Because you've got to put even the good stuff in its proper perspective. Tozer, A.W. Tozer said, we were meant to be eternally preoccupied with God. I love that. I want to be preoccupied with God. I don't want to be preoccupied with everything else. Tim Keller wrote a book one time, Counterfeit Gods. And he said there are three cultural, generally speaking, three cultural gods that we worship. Money, sex, and power. 
I'm going I'm to say just, just a, a few, just a couple things. First of all, for those of you who are preoccupied with money, I get that. You, you, you want to provide for your family, you want to know, you want to have some stability in your life and you're always checking your bank account, all of that kind of stuff. But you understand paying attention to money doesn't automatically help you pay attention to the one who gave you the money. You see, it's okay to be financially aware. It's okay to want to as John Wesley said, earn all you can. Save all you can, give all you can, do all the good you can. This, it's, it's, it's good. But unless somehow that fascination or preoccupation with money becomes a trigger to leading you to God, then the devil's won. Because he, he, that's all he has to do is get you to pay attention to money instead of God. That's a counterfeit God. That becomes a, that becomes a counterfeit God. Let me tell you a real easy way to help you do that. Every time you check your money, say, thank you, God, you gave me this. Help me manage this in a way that glorifies you. Every time you get more money, take the first portion of it, give it to God. And that will be a way that points you back to God. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So you can turn that into its proper perspective and into an ultimate attention. Let me, let me say this about sex. I'm going to offend some of you right now, and I don't care. Because we live in an over-sexualized society. I have never seen the preoccupation with sex uh, in, in, in this culture ever, ever. And, and, and I realize some of you are in a season of, you know, you're kind of hyper-sexualized and in in, you're in that season of life and, 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 you know, you're, I get that. But I, I just want to say this to you. There's an epidemic, an epidemic of pornography that is a disease, that is an addiction, that literally will change how you think and prevent you from having a healthy relationship because you have replaced it with something less than ultimate and loving and giving. Sex is good, it's a gift of God. But if it's used in a way that was never intended to be used, if it's not tov, it becomes absolutely destructive. God does not want us to be slaves of sin. And pornography makes you a slave. You begin to look at people differently. How is it that you can get from where you are thinking of them as a possible sex object to thinking of them as a child of God who deserves your respect? How is it that you can be in a relationship not thinking what you can get out of it sexually 
but how you can serve them, pray for them, encourage them spiritually. There's got to be a transition, and it has to do with stopping some of the things you've done. You know, as you go through the Lenten series, Lenten season, there's a, there's a tradition of giving something up. It's because it helps us concentrate on a sacrificial Christ who gave up everything for us. Now, you can do a whole range of things. I, I always do one kind of silly one and one really serious one. My kind of silly one this, this time, and it's just an indulgent, it's not a sin. I gave up pop. We call it pop in the Midwest, it's soda down here. You know, because I really like it with pizza and hamburgers. And, and so just every time I can't have one, I go, oh, God, thanks for reminding me that you're way more important. Let me tell you what else I gave up. Anger. Now, that is sin. And I don't want to give it up for 40 days. I want to give it up the rest of my life. Because I can't love always being provoked to anger. I can't do that. And so every time I get angry, that's a trigger. That's what this, this whole subtraction thing is about. So let me sum it up like this. It's important for us to understand the devil's schemes. It says in the Bible, brethren, I would not have you be ignorant of the devil's wiles. The devil is so subtle that he will incrementally get you to a place where you are in bondage or you are no longer serving God, but you haven't realized it. He will get you to a place, not where you're doing a sin so shocking that it would lead you to repulsion, but just acceptable enough that it leads you not to change. Unless the Holy Spirit comes to you and you open, we open our lives to the Holy Spirit and say, God, show me. Show me how I've left you. Show me how I'm so concerned about everything. You remember what Jesus said about food and about attractiveness, raiment, and all this kind of stuff? Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? He, went, he goes on to say, remember that passage? Where he says, look at, the, look at the, the birds of the air. They don't worry. They, just, they, they don't work. God feeds them. Look at the lilies of the field. Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed as beautifully as one of those. You think God doesn't know you need those? God knows all you need. And he'll supply it. Trust him. Trust God. But here's the larger message. Don't focus, even in a major way, on what you've got to get rid of more than who you're going to. 
there is a structure for our relationships with God and with other people. It's called the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments is not a bunch of rules of good behavior. They're how to guard relationships. Ten Commandments is all about a relationship with God. Second of the five is about relationship with people. And it says in, in Exodus chapter 1, or chapter 20, verses 2 through 4, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. But he goes on to teach us how to focus on him, how to fix our eyes on Jesus. You remember when Satan came to Jesus in the desert and he was trying to, trying to tempt him with all those same things? Came out and said, are you hungry? Turn the stones into bread. I know you've got an appetite. And Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then he tried the second one. He said, you know, if you want people to be attracted to you, go up on that temple and throw yourself down. Because it's written that you shall not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Who was Jesus thinking? He was thinking about God. Thinking about God. Satan was even using scripture. And Jesus was still thinking about God. He wasn't even battling Satan in the scripture. just thinking about God. And then the last one, control. Don't you love how Eden comes to the desert? How all the trees in paradise weren't enough for Adam and Eve. But nothing plus God is enough for Jesus in the wilderness. See, that's where we want to go. And so he, this is what he said. You want control? You want power? I give you all the kingdoms of the world. And this is what Jesus ultimately said to him. Matthew 4.10. Away from me, Satan. Get out of my face. By the way, you have, this, you have the power to do exactly the same thing. And your words has just as much power over Satan as these words from Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus is in you. Jesus is speaking that through you. You have all the power he has because he's in you. Away from me. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We're about to go through just a little exercise right here. Just to kind of show us our hearts. But before we do that, I want to remind us where our attention needs to be when we walk out of here. It doesn't need to be on the devil. If you think too much about the devil, he's got you. Nikos Kanzakis, author, grew up in Greece, and, 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 and when he was a little boy, he, he had this priest who taught him about doing warfare with the devil, struggling with the devil. Years later, he would remember this priest, and the priest by this time had become a monk, had gone into a monastery. And when Nikos became 
later middle age. He wondered if he was still alive. Father Macarius was his name. So he went to sea, and he was alive. Now a very old man. And he got an audience with him. And he sat down with him, and he looked at him, and he said, Father, I have a question for you. Do you still wrestle with the devil? And the old monk thought a minute, and then he smiled. And he said, no, my son. I've grown very old. And he's grown very old with me. And he no longer has the strength. And then he paused and he said, now I wrestle with God. With God, Nico says. And you expect to win? No. I hope to lose. Pray with me. Lord, take this word and apply it to our minds that we might not grow shallow and to our hearts that we might not grow cold and to our feet that we might be doers of the word and not hearers only. We have wandered. We have nibbled our way lost like sheep. Bring us back to you. Amen.